Acts 21, page 930, in your ESPQ When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. The following day, Paul went in with us to James, all the elders who were present. And after greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God. They said to him, you see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law. They've been told about you. That you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, having them not to circumcise their children, walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. So do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you. But you yourself also live in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took the men. The next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and offering presented for each of them. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd. And they laid hands on him. And they cried out, men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law in this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, within the city. And they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. And all the city was stirred up. And the people ran together. And they seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple. And at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. But the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered it to be brought into the barracks. When he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of the people followed, crying out, Away with him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Almighty God, we humbly bow ourselves before your presence this morning. We are unworthy sinners, O Lord. As we look to the scripture this morning and to the unfolding of events of Paul's arrest, O Lord, we're reminded, O Lord, that to follow you 
is to mean that we will also be persecuted. When we follow hard after you, we will be treated like you were, O Lord. You said to us yourself that a servant is not above his master, that they persecuted me and will persecute you. And Lord, as we see this unfold in the life of Paul as written in your word, I pray that you would give us insight and understanding of what it means to stand firm in times of great difficulty. Lord, we're about to examine a passage that shows the ugliness. Lord, the ugliness of what can happen in the church. How gossip and slander could destroy a person's reputation. How a bad report and rumors and lies could kill a person. Help us, O oh Lord, to listen to what is said today. Give me unction as I speak. Help me, Lord, to preach not as just a lecture, but led by your spirit. And that our hearts would be tender, receptive, and understanding to hear what you have to say to us today. Oh Lord, may you glorify yourself. May your word be proclaimed. And may you be pleased to use me as a vessel of mercy. In Christ's name, amen. Technology has come a long way since I've been a kid. A lot has happened. I'm 45, I'll be 46 in two weeks. And uh, in my lifetime, figure, I lived to 90, I lived about half my life, if God gives me, gives me 90 years. But in my 45 years, I've seen a tremendous change in technology. It doesn't seem like a long time. But a lot has happened in the last 45 years. Just to give you an example, when I was a kid, I had a record player. And on my record player, I had two albums that I would listen to all the time in my bedroom. One was by Eddie Rabbit, and one was the soundtrack to Urban Cowboy. Now those who are a little from that era would remember those record albums. And I loved to play record albums. Then, <laughs> amazingly, the cassette tape came out. If you remember cassette tapes, they were able to take everything that was on that record album, compact it into something this big, put it in your cassette player, and you had boom boxes, and that was all the rage. And shortly into my teenage years, the cassette tape was obsolete, and we got the compact disc. Now everything was put on a laser disc that gave you crystal clear sound. Remember the Max, Maxwell commercials where the guy was sitting in a chair and the speaker would blow him all over the seat? And from CDs in the early 2000s, they became obsolete, and we got MP3s. I remember having these little MP3 players. I couldn't afford an iPod back then. And uh, you would go on, on websites like Napster and download all your music. Well, look where we are today. Forget it all. We got, we got a phone that has apps in it. You have at least 10 different apps that can play playlists and music. But here's the irony. Here's the irony. And recently I was in the Denver Mall and I went to the store with my daughter that she likes. They sell comic books and whatnot. And there in the store was a record player. People are still using records. Interesting thing. You go forward 10 steps and then all of a sudden you loop back to where you started. Was it nostalgia? I don't know. Where am I getting at? Why am I even saying this? With technology comes a lot of change. It's not just about music. How we associate with people. 
When I was younger, when we associated with people, when we fellowship with people, it was face-to-face. When I went to school, all my interactions were face-to-face. When, when I was a child, my social life was all face-to-face. Now everything is on the internet. Kids today, like my children, are limited to interacting through uh, devices and uh, through social media. Social media is probably which has really taken over social interactions. And I say this with conviction, it's probably the worst thing that ever happened to the human race. Social media has done nothing but hurt people. There's nothing productive or good that comes out of social media. Sure, you need some information, share pictures, but for the most part, social media has proven by scientific studies to be absolutely and utterly destructive to relationships and to how we relate to people. Why? Because what you would say while typing on your phone or your keyboard, you would never say to a person to their face. What you would say to a person where hundreds of people are watching on Facebook or Instagram, you would never say in a crowded room to somebody. We have become a charitable, become rude, obnoxious, offensive, proud, and arrogant, nasty people. And I'm talking about Christians. The world is the world. You have people that are utterly obsessed and live their whole lives on Twitter and Instagram addicted to and feeding for likes and approvals by others, checking their feed to see how many people are following them. And we have so many that are addicted to outrage today. The first remark that someone makes that they find to be slightly politically correct, they're going to express their outrage and the Twitter mob will hang it out and dry. It's nasty. But what hurts me more than anything is when I see Christians interacting online. When I see Christians where if, if someone, and I won't mention names, but if, a, if, a, if an evangelical speaker who we all love and respect says one thing of color, the mob now, the Christian mob, descends on them. And the comments you read and what people say it is anything but Christ-like. And those people who make those comments would never say that publicly, would never say that to the face of the person. You know why? Because social media dehumanizes people. You're looking at an image of someone. You're not looking at the person. You know what social media has done? It's taking gossip and slander to a level that has never been. You know what gossip and slander is? Talking about someone bad behind your back and you do it because they can't see you face to face. Well, you could do it tenfold now on social media. What are the results? The church has never been more divided. But let me make this clear. The church has always been divided. Don't think there's ever been a golden age of unity in the church because we're looking at our passage right here. The church is divided in Acts chapter 20. Division has always existed. We have here two churches on display. The Church of Jerusalem, the Jerusalem Church, the Jewish Church, and we have the Gentile Church, based out of Antioch, but it's Paul who's the leader of this Gentile mission, this 
Gentile church, this, gen this church that clearly is based on Paul's teaching of justification by faith alone. And then you have, on the other hand, you have the Jewish church. It's distinctively Jewish. And you have the heads of these two churches coming together for a meeting. And what unfolds is really ugly. We're going to examine this text today. We're going to look at it and hopefully learn some lessons. Learn some lessons about how destructive words can be. How hurtful words can be. How, how saying something about someone, especially a Christian leader, who we may disagree with something he said can snowball into something it was never intended to be. And you can have a whole mob of people ready to, ready to kill you. That's exactly what happens to Paul. And I'm not saying it reaches that degree. But there is an intensity today among believers of sharp disagreement. And there, I think there always has been social media exasperates it where it could lead to just ugliness in the church. And it does not glorify God. It glorifies no one but the devil. So let's get into our passage. Paul finally arrives in Jerusalem. He has been determined to go there. Several Christians who he's met along the way have told him, do not go. Do not go. Nothing but trouble awaits you. You'll be arrested. Gavin is prophesied. Paul, his face is set by Flint. He's determined to go. And he is going to go. Why is he going to go? Is this just something that Paul is arrogant for? Is it something that he just must do? Is he looking to go there just to prove something? No. Paul has a purpose to his men. His purpose is to go to Jerusalem to bring a gift to the church. Now, just to refresh, uh, for some of you who missed maybe the context of some of the sermons, we know that Paul has been collecting money from the churches he's planted. This is littered all throughout his epistles. You can find evidence where Paul has been collecting money from the churches in Greece, from the churches of Asia, and taking representatives from each church to come to Jerusalem to, to give a collection, to give a gift to the church who's been suffering under persecution and poverty, to show, hey, listen, we're in solidarity together. We're with you. We're united with you. We stand with you. We love you. And these Gentile uh, churches are giving sacrificially from their heart to support the work here in Jerusalem. I, Paul, come bearing this. I'm showing you the men who are with me. And, 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 and this, is, this is evidence of the grace of God and the work that God is doing. In 1 Corinthians 16, Paul writes, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, though you also are to do on the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside, store it up as he may prosper, so there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those who you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. Romans 15, 25. At present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. But they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For the Gentiles have come to share their spiritual blessing. They ought also to be of service to them in material blessing. These two passages give us a picture and a snapshot of what Paul's work has been doing. He's been writing to the churches to collect money. He's going to come and take it, 
bring representatives with them, and the purpose is to show love and solidarity with the saints in Jerusalem. But also, he reminds Gentiles, you need to demonstrate your, your love to the Jewish people, recognizing that you share in their blessings. Remember Paul's theology, Gentiles like branches grafted into the root. It's through the Jewish people come the law of the prophets and the blessings of God. And it's not because the Gentiles are more spiritual, it's because God is judging Israel at the current time. And so to the Jewish Christians, they owe. There's a sense of obligation. And so Paul has comes to Jerusalem, and it's in this time in our passage where he's presenting the gift. However, it is interesting, and we'll note in a few moments, nothing is mentioned in this entire passage about the gift. Hold that thought for a minute. So let's look at what is mentioned. The first thing that's mentioned is what God has done. Paul is coming to meet James. James is the head of the church in Jerusalem. Now, who is James? James is the half-brother of Jesus. He's referred to as James the Just by the early church, you see, this tells us in his record of church history, they called them old Cavalies. Why they called Cavalies? This was a man who was known for his piety. He would pray so much. He would go into the temple and pray so much that his knees became callous. And he was thrown from the temple by the Pharisees when he was martyred. But he's the head of the church in Jerusalem. This isn't Paul's first meeting with James either. Probably his fourth, the last we saw was in Acts chapter 15, when they had the council to determine how Gentiles would be included into the church. And the edict which was determined by that council meeting is repeated here by James in his passage and how the Gentiles would do uh, uh, how to live their life, one of the moral and ethical uh, requirements for Gentiles in the Christian church. Now, these two men are leading two very different movements. But both of them love Jesus, and both of them love the gospel, and both of them want to further the kingdom of God. But they're in very different parts of the world, and they're doing it very differently. So Paul comes and shows them the fruit of what's going on. He has people with him. Earlier in Acts chapter 20, it gives us a list of all the men who had come with him, Trophimus being one of them, which was uh, repeated here in chapter 21. The gift is there, although it's not mentioned, it, the collection is offered at this time. And it tells us that he recounts to James all that was done. Now, it wasn't just James, but all the elders were present. The church was large at this point. James tell, it tells us that James told all there's thousands of converts. So it's not just one or two elders. Uh, in fact, early church historians believe there were 70 elders to match the Sanhedrin. So this was a large group of godly men. This was this was a group of pastors, and they were hearing about what Paul was doing, and Paul recounts to them all that God had done. And notice what he says, related one by one the things that God had done. We sing that song, Count Your Blessings. <laughs> right? It's a, taken right out of that passage. Name them one by one, and you will begin to see what God has done. He's recounting the work of God. He's telling all what took place in Corinth and Ephesus and and, and, and Athens and Philippi. I mean, there was a lot to report. But notice, it's not what I have done that Paul reports. It's what God has done. It's the work of God. He's testifying to the work of God. Look, 
It's through me, he says, and, and through Silas and Timothy, we're all part of this work, and Dr. Luke is here, but this is the work of God. Here are some of the brethren that have been saved. Here are their testimonies. And, and here's the collection that bears evidence of the, of the generosity of the hearts of the people who have been saved. It tells us when they heard it, they glorified God. That's the beauty of it there. We see that there's a receptive spirit. James and the elders are, are glad. They're rejoicing that God has glorified himself in the work that was done. And likewise, James says, we've been growing too. He says to him in verse 20, you see, brothers, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who believe, and they're all zealous for the law. They look, even among Jerusalem, the church is growing. There's thousands getting saved. And here's some of the fruits. We have a large uh, uh, group of elders, a Presbyterian. And we're worshiping God too, and they're zealous for God's law. And it's right there where you see that the difference comes in. It's been said by some scholars that Paul and James were really butting heads here. It's hard to read into it. Luke thought that James and Paul were, were enemies. In fact, Luther had such contempt for James that he called the Epistle of James a letter of straw. They would believe that James emphasized more good works, where Paul emphasized more Justification by faith alone. I, I don't. I don't agree with them here. I don't agree with them. I don't think there was a clash between the two. I think there was a cultural clash, but I do not think there was a doctrinal clash. So let me let me establish that. I think doctrinally, James and Paul agreed on the gospel. The Jerusalem Council makes that clear in chapter 15. That when it was reported the Gentiles first got saved by Peter, and, and when Paul was there testifying. They made it clear. No, God has, has taken in the Gentiles like he's taken in us. We're saved by faith and faith alone. Like, doctrinally, they were on the same page for the gospel. Morally, ethically, they were on the same page. But in terms of discipleship, in terms of culture, and more importantly, as we'll see here, what part does the law play in the life of the Christian? There was disagreement. And I guess this has always been a division among Christians, right? Law versus gospel, law versus grace. That fine line, that razor's edge. You know, we move too, too much to the law, we're considered legalistic. Too much to grace, we're considered hyper grace, and And so what you see here is you have a legalistic group, in one sense, there are a lot of converts and Jews, and they're zealous for the law. Well, they're Jewish after all. The New Testament has yet to be written. They have the Word of God, which is the Old Testament. That's all they have. And they are zealous to obey God's law. They should be. They're God's holy people. In, in their regenerated state, God had given the Spirit now to obey the law, to keep the law, to glorify Him. Not the ceremonial law, moral law of God. These are devout Jews. They wanted to honor God with their lives. They were Jewish. Why not? But on the other hand, 
They're the Gentiles. They were pagans. They know nothing about the Old Testament. They know nothing about the law. It's sufficient for them to come to faith in Christ, to follow the doctrinal teachings established in Acts chapter 15, and more importantly, as developed by Paul in his letters, the moral implications of the Ten Commandments expressed through the New Testament. It's a very interesting period. So it's this point where trouble begins to loom. Because in verse 21, they've been told about you, that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? Remember I told you about the collection? Where's the thank you? Brother, this is so generous of you. We're not worthy to receive such a gift. Praise God. This is enormous. Thank you for supporting the poor in the church of Jerusalem. Nothing. The silence is deafening. Why did Luke leave that out? He doesn't bring it up till Acts 24. It shows the tension in a room could be cut with a knife. The first thing James could tell Paul after he went through all this is, listen, they're talking bad about you. We have zealous Jews here for the law. They're saying you teach against the law of God. You're telling Jews not to keep the law. Ouch. I've come all this way, and this is the this is the this is what I get. As I said, it's a it's an ugly picture of what's going on in the early church. You know, you start to wonder, first of all, who's spreading these rumors about Paul? Because it's obviously a clear misrepresentation of everything that Paul taught. It's a lie. It's a it's a it's a dip of a lie. But the rumor mill got started. And you know how rumors are, right? If I, if I, if I whisper something in Elizabeth's ear, and Elizabeth whispers in Claudia's ear, and then it's Rachel's ear, and it's Marcia's ear, and then Anthony, it goes around the room, by the time it gets to Dora, the story's changed a hundred times. Paul now is seen as this antinomian who's telling Jews they shouldn't circumcise their children. People are outraged. They're angry. And Paul already has enough problems with unbelieving Jews who want his head. They're the ones who get arrested shortly. But now he's got believing Jews in the church that want his head. He's persona non grata in Jerusalem right now. He should have listened to Hacobus and never went there. Because he gets himself in a real pickle here. Gossip is an awful thing. The scripture tells us when words are meant in transgression, it's not lacking. The, the, the morsels of gossip go down into our bodies and they are very destructive. Gossip is an awful thing because what you do through gossiping and, and talking bad about other people behind their backs is you continue to spread lies and it multiplies, and you could ruin someone's reputation and ruin their life. Paul's reputation was smeared, utterly smeared in the church by lies. And guess what? The people who 
heard him, believed him, believed that Paul was a bad guy. I'm thankful I'm not a Christian celebrity, but I'm a celebrity pastor, you know. I think the celebrity pastors who have to take stands, you know, they're the ones that get the Twitter storms and the Facebook storms and the all the foul remarks. Although I did find out recently that someone smeared me on YouTube. They aligned me with the, the group. <laughs> it was absolutely, literally ridiculous. But see how lies can go about? And if people smear people's reputations, it's disgusting. It's deplorable. That's what Satan loves when the churches are destroyed that way. Sit down and talk to a person, find out what they really believe, what they think, before you go about smearing someone's reputation. Paul's reputation was at stake here, but Paul didn't care about himself. Remember, he says, I don't count my life as dear to me. So how does Paul respond to all this, right? James saying, what should we do? Now one wonders, why did James put this to death? Why is he even repeating the rumor? It's almost like by repeating it, he's giving credibility. So Paul responds. Well, actually, I'm saying James goes on to say, what shall be done? And then he makes a suggestion. He said, do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men, purify yourself along with them, and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance for the law. But as the Gentiles have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols, and from blood, and what has been strangled from sexual morality. And Paul took the men, the next day he purified himself home with them, and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled presented for each of them. So here we see what happened. James has a solution to the problem. It's a horrible idea. Not only is it a horrible idea, but Paul is in a terrible state of mind because he goes along with it. There was no way this was going to work out well. So what does he suggest? What are they talking about? We're talking about shaving heads again. Remember Paul shaved his head a couple of chapters ago when he left Corinth? What we see there was that Paul took a Nazarite vow. We looked at that several weeks ago. Um, Paul took a Nazarite vow and he shaved his head to conclude his vow and giving thanks to God. But one thing that Paul did not do is he did not go to Jerusalem and offer a sacrifice purification ritual in Jerusalem. That would have required him to bring an animal to the altar of God and to offer a burnt offering before the Lord, which Paul knew, and any Christian who had developed theology would have known, was finished. Christ had fulfilled all the ceremonial law. Paul's Nazarite vow when he took it was custom. It was a Jewish custom and tradition as he expressed his love and thankfulness to God. It was a period when he abstained from certain pleasures of the world to express his commitment to God during that period. Evidently, there were four members of the Jerusalem church who had likewise taken a Nazarite vow. But James is asking Paul now to go to the temple with them 
and to pay for their purification ritual, to offer sacrifices, to observe the law, as he says, and, it would, and to pick up the, the tab as well, which would have been a considerable cost. I mean, after laying all this money out the church of Jerusalem, he's asking them now to pay the, the, the cost. Now think of this. Put this put yourself in Paul's shoes. Paul has been preaching justification by faith alone. Paul has been preaching that the law, we're no longer under law, we're under grace. And I think it's important to see what Paul teaches. Galatians 2, 15. Paul says this, we ourselves are Jews by birth. And not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we believe in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. In Galatians 6 15, he says, For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. Colossians 2 16 through 17. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink, or with regard to festival or new moons or Sabbath. These are a shadow of things to come. The substance belongs to Christ. If you really want to know Paul's position on the law, just look at Romans 7 7 12. What shall we say then? That the law is sin by no means. If it not been for the law, it would not know no sin. For I would not have known what is to covet, unless the law said you shall not covet. But sin seizing opportunity through the commandment produced in all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin was dead. I once was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life through death to me, for sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceiving me through it killed me. So the law is holy. Man that is holy and righteous and good. Paul wasn't teaching Jewish people to abandon the law. The law can't be saved. The law was a tutor. It was meant to bring us to Christ. To show us our sinfulness. As a Jewish person, Paul would never forbid anyone to not circumcise their children, to not keep the commands. Paul himself was a Jew. Kept the customs and traditions of the Jews. But he understood the bigger picture. How do we get to how do we get to salvation? How do we get to acceptance with God? It's not through keeping law, it's through faith in Christ. So Paul's in a situation which I would call a no-win situation. Here he is, standing in front of James and the elders. He has a choice. He can take these four men, go to the temple, pay, their, pay for their ritual cleansing, be cleansed himself, and make everybody happy. What would that say to the Gentile churches? What would that say about his doctrine and his preaching to the Gentile churches? On the other hand, if he didn't do it, what would the Jews say about him in Jerusalem? They, they would only confirm their bias, say, no, Paul is Antinomian. There you go, you have it. He won't go to the temple. Paul's in an open situation. No matter what he does, he, and here's the irony. All Paul wants is unity. But no matter what Paul does, he's going to upset somebody. I can tell you as a pastor, I've been in that situation many times. There are times in life when you're going to be in a no-win situation. You're going to be in the middle of two parties that have very different views. And if you side, 
take one position, you're going to upset the other, and vice versa. It's not a matter of right or wrong, it's a matter of tribal unity, and sometimes you just cannot do it. Let me soak in for a minute what's at stake here. If Paul acquiesced, what is he really saying about everything he preaches and teaches? They're asking him to go through a ritual cleansing for seven days. This isn't because he took a Nazarite vow. This is because under the law, if you are a Jewish person, you go travel far away into Gentile lands for a long time, you have to go through a seven-day ritual cleansing to get all the defilement of the Gentiles off of you before you can go into the temple of God. What is that saying about Paul if he does this? What is it saying about Paul if he gives all this money to a system, a priestly system that is corrupt, that has defiled itself, and that is guilty of crucifying Jesus? What does it say about Paul if he does this? Paul acquiesces. How can Paul acquiesce to this? Why did Noah, after God saved him and his family, get drunk and lay naked in his vineyard? Why did Abraham, after God had promised him everything, lie because he was afraid of Abimelech and said, That's not my wife, that's my sister? Why did Moses, after all God had shown him, strike the rock in anger? Why did David, after all the Lord had done for him, take another man's wife who committed adultery? Why did Peter, after himself being there in Cornelius' home and seeing how the Holy Spirit came upon the Gentiles when he came to Antioch, Refused to sit with the Gentiles for fear of the Jews. Paul had to get up and rebuke him publicly for his hypocrisy. Why did Paul capitulate? Why did he acquiesce to this? Because the best of men are men at best. No matter who you are, there's always going to be a failure. The redeeming quality here is I believe that Paul, in his heart, did it for the purpose of unity. I think Paul, although he went against his convictions, loved God's people. He loved the church. It wasn't about saving his reputation. It was about keeping these two Christianities, the Jewish Christianity and Gentile Christianity, together. It, it, and I think this follows his policy of 1 Corinthians 9, to become all things to all people. He says to the Jews, I became as a Jew, in order to win Jews, to those under the law, I became as one under the law. Though myself not being under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law. Not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, and I may win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. Sometimes you cannot be all things to all people. And I think although this was Paul's policy, this was the time that he discovered it just wasn't the right thing to do. While there's much to admire about Paul, the scriptures tell us these dark stories, and some people disagree. There's, there's variation, but most scholars tend to agree that Paul 
maybe not sinful, but at least greatly erred in his judgment. This is a poor decision on his part. Where do we go from here? Well, there's a couple of lessons we need to learn. One is that there are going to be times when we're going to be faced with difficult decisions. There are going to be times that we might be confronted to compromise our own convictions for the sake of unity. There are some issues that you absolutely cannot compromise on. The essentials of doctrine, the essentials that we understand in the orthodox teaching of Scripture, you cannot compromise on. You cannot compromise on the Trinity. You cannot compromise on justification by faith alone. You cannot compromise on the Gospel. There's no unity in such compromise. And Paul himself said, if anyone preaches a different gospel, let him be accursed. And on the other hand, we have to be charitable and know when to bang it on certain issues. I find that the younger a Christian is, the more dogmatic they are. When Christians are young and human, they they're exceedingly dogmatic. And they fight with everybody. I do. When I was a young believer, when I first came, you know what they call it, the cage stage, where you just want to argue with everyone. You don't win anyone for Christ. You don't win arguments. You make a lot of enemies. The more you mature in your face. Because I, I think if you're looking at Paul here, this is like 25 years after he was converted. I think if this was a few years after his conversion, he would have been like, Heck no, James, I'm out of here. It would have been a different Paul. Paul had been softened in his heart and tendered in his heart. And I find that as we grow older as Christians, we become more tender, more merciful, more forgiving, more charitable. And that's not a bad quality. So I think although Paul erred in his judgment here, his intentions were right. He wanted to see the church be united. He wanted the church to be his one. And, and he was willing to make a sacrifice to make that. Remember, he says, I go to Jerusalem ready to die. Do we fight for the unity of the church? Are we willing to sacrifice our own opinions and our own thoughts? Are we willing to unite with people that may be slightly different in opinions from us on non-essential matters? We've drawn the line in the sand and divided it from other people, and the world hates us. Does it make sense? Know what it means to love God's people and to pursue you. Well, Paul was going to go through with this. But God in his grace and dream. Look what happens. Verse 27. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia saw him in the temple. These were Jews from Ephesus, and they stirred up the crowd and made hands on him. Crying out, individual help. This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and everyone everywhere up against this law in this place. Moreover, he brought Greeks into the temple and is defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian within the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. 
And Paul was in the city for seven days. These were Jews from Ephesus. Now we go back to Acts chapter 19. Remember Paul reasoned for three months in the synagogue. And the Jews were like, get out. We don't want to hear it. Paul was in Ephesus for three years. So we, they knew him. They knew his face. They saw him there. They saw him with Gentile believers. They knew Trophimus. Because Trophimus was from Ephesus. And now look what confirmation biased us. They didn't see him going to the temple of Trophimus. But they assumed that he's there. And Trophimus said he might go into the temple of Trophimus. When you have it out for someone, you're going to see the worst in that person no matter what. And that's exactly what happened here. But God is sovereignly moving for a purpose here. So these people see Paul, they're enraged. They whip up the crowd. Not easy to cause a mob scene in Jerusalem. Not the context, the culture at this time. Jewish people, this is about 25 years, 27 years after the death of Christ, are really rapid in their anti-Roman hate. These are people that are seeing, they are seeing Gentiles on their land and in their temple area for at least 500 years now. They're tired of Roman oppression. They're tired of the Gentile incursion on their culture, their way of life, on their land. Kind of gives you an idea of why the Jewish Christians are upset with Paul. They have enough of Gentiles. Gentiles are here. They're ruling the city. They tell us what to do. They tax us. And what does Paul do? He goes out there and, and converts them to our religion. Look, he's making the situation worse. We've had enough of Gentile influence. We don't need any more of it. In some ways, you can understand it. You can understand how the Jewish Christians felt. You can understand how the non-believing Jews. This was Pentecost. This was a... One of the highest holy days of the year is a patriotic day. It's like 4th of July. This is when we as Jews celebrate being Jewish. The anger is at a boiling point. It's at a tipping point. They see Paul. They see red. Doesn't take much to whip up the crowd. The crowds are already violent. The Sakari was a terrorist group that existed this time. If they sense that anyone was in league with the Romans or, or sympathetic to the Romans, they would send their groups out in, 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 in a mob scene. And, and, you know, when people are gathered in large groups, they would carry daggers in them. And when in the large party, this was going on, they would stab someone and kill them if they suspected that you had any sympathy for the Romans or Gentiles. So what do, they, what do these Asian Jews do? They whip up the crowd. As the city was stirred up, the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple. And at once the gates were shut. Now, do you know how offensive it would be if Paul didn't bring Trophimus into the temple? Josephus tells us that outside the, the gate in a court was a sign that warned Gentiles that if you're not Jewish, no one goes beyond this point, and if you do, you'll get killed. And the Romans even respected that. To say that Paul brought someone in the inner courts of the, den, of the temple, who was a Gentile, was, was akin to Antiochus of Ephesus coming into the temple and worshiping sacrificing a pig on the altar. It defiled the place of God. The people were enraged. 
Paul was already a hated man all around him. He was not a popular guy in Jerusalem. It's interesting. He came into the church suspect. They said, hmm, we shouldn't make him a member. After all, he was killing us. And now 25 years later, he's doing the work of God and he's still suspect. They dragged him out of the temple area because it would have been sinful to beat him inside the temple precincts. They were seeking to kill him. We know he was beaten to within an inch of his life. If it wasn't for the Roman cohort who observed this and saw the mayhem and pandemonium in the city, he would have been killed. It tells us that they had to carry him into the Roman quarters. He was beaten so badly. And you got a mob? I don't know if you've ever seen a mob. I don't know if you've ever seen when people get whipped up. And we saw some riots a couple of years ago. And that's how, how destructive that could be. This was, this was something of a whole other war. These were people that were foaming at the mouth, zealous. And it would have been, it would have been deadly for Paul if the Romans had not intervened. It was really God who intervened. God intervened in two ways. God intervened to prevent Paul from making such a terrible mistake going into the temple and offering sacrifices. He prevented him from discrediting his own ministry, from discrediting the gospel. And he spared him from death because he still had more work to do. You see, missionary journeys were over. Paul's, the next thing to Paul's ministry would be testifying before kings and magistrates the gospel of Jesus Christ. In the next several chapters, trial after trial after trial, Paul will preach the gospel in front of Roman governors, in front of Herod, and ultimately he will have an audience with Caesar himself. But this was all part of God's plan. God used the foolishness of Paul's decisions, the foolishness of the church of Jerusalem, and all the bad for good. This is why Romans 8.28 makes sense. God works all things together for the good of those who love and call according to Christ Jesus. Bad decision-making all around here. God still is bringing about his purpose and plan. Amen? Amen. All right, let's conclude by saying just a few remarks. This was indeed an ugly episode in early church history. But throughout church history, it is not the only one. There are many episodes where God's people are very uncharitable to each other. Some of the people you venerate, like Luther and Calvin, they have their moments of darkness. We have to remember something. We worship Jesus Christ. He is the only perfect one. He is the only righteous one. He is the only one who lived a life without any error or sin or failure. We look to God and we look to man. It's a reminder that we will fail and make mistakes, that we will make errors in judgment. There will be times when you are in a no-win situation. The irony here is that God intervened and it was a win-win situation. So in some respects, even when you're in a no-win situation, it's always a win-win situation because God and his sovereignty will always bring it about for good. You may make the blunder, but God has a purpose in everything you do. It tells us we need to be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. 
There are times when you're going to face decisions that are not going to be easy to make. Secondly, I want us to see the importance of Paul's love for church. Paul may have had a failure here in his inconsistency, but ultimately he loved God's people and unity was the key, was the ultimate goal. And I encourage you all, pursue unity, love one another. Please do not gossip and slander other Christians, especially if you don't know them, especially if you can't talk to them face to face, and especially if you don't know everything about them. I've seen too many godly men in the last 10 years who have been thrown completely under the bus, mocked and slandered, called all kinds of things because they made errors in judgment or they made mistakes in what they said. Are we going to say the same about Paul? You say the same about me? We need to learn to be charitable about one another. Look at the work that God is doing in the lives of people around us. Remember that those who we enshrine are human beings. And they will now. Finally, just as there were tensions between Jews and Gentiles, there's always going to be tensions within the church. There will always be tensions with people of differing views. Eventually, the church would evolve. The Jewish church would, would, would change. It would be gone. It would be obsolete. The version of Christianity that Paul was preaching would be the version of Christianity we have today. Sometimes we're all in different places of our growth. There may be brothers and sisters in Christ who are in different areas of growth in their life. And we ought not to throw them under the bus. We ought not to look down on them. We ought not to create more tension. But seek ways to, to be unified with them, to love them, to encourage them, hope and pray that they will grow into a greater understanding of the gospel. And we may be the ones who need to grow as well. There may be others who don't assume you're right about everything. When we get to heaven, we're going to find out how wrong we were about a lot of things. One of the things that I think is so prevalent in church today is the arrogance we think we're right about everything. God will be the one, the final one, to determine who was right and who was wrong. Be faithful to the best of our ability, to love our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, and to serve him with all our strength. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we bless you and thank you for this time. Lord, we look at Paul concluding his ministry in chains. We've seen again the Lord Jesus. Oh Lord, you went to Jerusalem. You faced down your people. You confronted their false religion. They praised you one day. Like Paul, the next they sent away with you. They handed you over to the Romans. You were beaten and crucified. There are sins. Thank you, Jesus. 
Oh Lord, may we follow you. May we follow you in our lives, being willing to bear our cross, to die to ourselves daily, and to serve you, not ourselves. So much to say, so little time, Lord. But I pray that through this passage you would speak to our hearts, mold us and shape us in your image. In Christ's name, amen.